Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Bob Greenfield, the former CEO of NASDAQ. Now, these days, NASDAQ is a powerhouse stock exchange. But boy, that wasn't the case when Bob took over. It was small and struggling. But during his time in charge, he grew the business, if you can believe this number, by 2,000%, attracting companies like Apple, Microsoft, Starbucks, and Amazon to list on NASDAQ. In this conversation, we go behind the scenes of that amazing turnaround, and you can see for yourself how Bob's relentless focus and drive help make it happen. If you've ever looked at a big project or even just your day's to-do list, and you felt overwhelmed, this conversation is going to help you tap into the power of focus. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Bob Greenfield. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. My pleasure to be here today, David. You know, well, how's your week going, Bob? How's the week going? Yeah. Well, it's just starting, but I think, well, I'm here with you. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing unique going on that uh, you're working on in the world of financial uh, services? A couple things, but I can't really say it right now. <laughs> okay. uh, public company rules, you know, I don't yeah. want to violate those. Yeah. You know, when you think about what you're working on, what, what does have you the most excited these days without giving away a deal? Well, you know, I've always been a person who gets excited about building things. So I believe in the in the process, right? So when I see teams coming together and identifying mission and focusing on that mission, I know good results will happen. So in all my business endeavors, I try not to pay attention to the here and now, but what is the trend line? What are we doing right? What is the process we're building is doing right and where are we going to go? Yeah, that's really obvious in your book. You know, uh, this is all about your your leadership story, and, right. and I want to get to that. And, you know, I always like to start out at the beginning, Bob. Tell, yeah. tell us about your upbringing. So I was raised with a family of five children. My dad worked for the post office and always had two and three jobs. So it was a humble upbringing, but certainly you learn the value of hard work in that environment. You learn the value of family uh, when you have five children and we're all in it together. Where yeah. were you in the order there? Of the I was number two. I have an older sister and then uh, t- uh, two brothers, two other brothers and one other sister. Yeah. Well, tell us a story about your, your childhood days that might give us a real indication of what kind of person you've become. Well, I, I would say this. So right now with my properties, I have somebody mow the lawn for me and I have no guilt associated with it because one of the side <laughs> jobs my father had was running a landscaping business. So I would mow uh, when I was a kid, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was behind the mower every afternoon, every, every Saturday. So in my time, I mowed plenty of lawns, but you know, that was a certain uh, way to learn hard work. And I remember my father always saying to me, son, you're not going to make it by physical labor. You know, you've got to find a way to use your head. And those kind of simple thoughts, when you get that as a kid, stays with you and drives you going forward. So I was always looking for the smart or clever way, right, in terms of how to proceed with work. Well, how'd you find your way into the world of business? So it was interesting. I was an English undergraduate major. English? Uh, English, yes, English. Uh, And uh, uh, one of the people I read uh, when I was an English major was this uh, poet from St. Louis called William Burroughs. 
And so I was looking for a job and I saw Burroughs uh, Burroughs Corporation, which was early in the computer game. So I approached them and kind of my sales ability started to reveal itself. And I, you know, kind of somehow got a job there and the computer age in 1979, you didn't have that many people with computer science degrees. So they were looking for just kind of talented people. So then I got sucked into the computer world in 1979. And I remember kind of falling in love with computers in high school. So it was just a marriage. Uh, and it was not, you didn't have to be great and insightful to see that computers were going to be more and more important in society, not less so. So it was a good train to get Well, you're kind of downplaying that because, you know, most people were very afraid of computers back then. Yeah. So you were really a trailblazer, sort of a technology geek, even in those days, maybe a little in bit. In those days, I always had a great affinity for it. When I, I went to grad school at night at NYU, and 95% of the class were finance majors, and I was one of the few that were, you know, computer science major for my MBA. Uh, so I just found it, you know, fascinating. So I was lucky to find my calling, you know, fairly early, you know, always being around computers. So when people identify me as a Wall Street guy, it's not how I self-identify. I self-identify, you know, as a somebody associated with technology businesses. Did you have an aha moment that said, hey, this is where I have to be? Yeah, I would say no, but probably over a six-month period of time, I realized it. But uh, if anything, in high school, we had, you can remember, uh, we'd have to dial into the local state university to get access to the computer with the modem, with the noise, you need to put it in that little, what was called an acoustic coupler. So that was, you know, junior year of high school, I was like one of the five kids who were, you know, fooling around with the computer. So I, I early on said, you know, I just had great affinity for it. You know, there's so much we can talk about in your career, so I have to kind of move it yeah. along here, you know. You were quite happy working at SunGuard Data Systems. You were an executive vice president there before you joined NASDAQ. And prior to that, you'd been a software entrepreneur and a co-owner of ASC. As you were coming up and you were working your way up in companies like this, did you have a defining moment that sort of changed your career trajectory? Well, I would say this, that the uh, I went to Burroughs Corporation, was there for 10 years or so, and basically got the promotions that were available where I got to be a district manager running the New York region. Uh, but we realized that computers at that time, the world was changing. We moved from mainframes to minis, micros were coming, and Burroughs, which was Unisys, was really not on top of the game. And a defining moment, I said, what's remarkable about the software business is the marginal cost back then was the cost of the tape you know, to produce the, and now you just can download it. And I said, I need to be in the software business. The hardware business was going to be commoditized, right? As compared to 1979. So I had a defining moment said software, where is I, where I want to go. And then, you know, I was slotted in certain career path and that blows up when you, you know, become an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, become successful with that. And so we sold our company to SunGuard in 1999 uh, it was probably a couple of years too early, but it's always be better to be a couple years too early than selling it a couple of years too late, uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, so then you get the opportunity to go be CEO for the first time uh, and be the CEO of NASDAQ. What was the business situation like when, when you went to NASDAQ? And, and, but when did you really realize when you were evaluating that you were the right person for the job? Yeah. So when I was an entrepreneur, we built trading systems for NASDAQ market makers. That's a key part of the background. So I knew 
exactly how the NASDAQ market operated. And believe it or not, and this seems made up, but my master's thesis at NYU was on the NASDAQ stock market. Right. So there was some <laughs> this destiny. is too yeah. this is destiny. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of a destiny there. So I had firm views on NASDAQ. And the context when I came there is NASDAQ had been part of the NASD, which was the regulator. So people working there had self-selected to work basically for a regulatory kind of culture. The NASDAQ was in the process of separating from the NASD, wanted to go public and obviously list on their own market. But what happened was uh competition was uh forming and nasdaq was in dire straits and they had a venture capital firm called hellman and friedman out of san francisco had invested in nasdaq to help them along with the mission to go public and so hellman friedman and warren hellman in particular uh replaced the prior ceo and they were really the driving force to hire me and i was an unusual hire because typically uh, if you go to an exchange, it was a sinecure job. You know, it was a person of gravitas who came from long line of investment banking. And I was none, none of that. But Warren out there in the valley recognized that NASDAQ, when you peeled it away, the imprimatur of the exchange license was a technology processing business and saw that I had been a successful entrepreneur, was able to then take that entrepreneurial spirit to NASDAQ as we tried to go public. And obviously had domain expertise in terms of what the markets were about. Yeah. Well, you were, you know, you weren't a Wall Street guy. No. You're technology guy. Right. Coming in from the outside, not being a Wall Streeter, did you find any pushback on you coming into that job? So uh, you're certainly the expert in leadership, but I, I would say this. I, I, I took a leadership position which was short-term but necessary. Uh, so we did not have time to get involved with a consensus-driven approach, which is my preferred way uh, to go. Our, our market share was declining every day. Our technology could not compete with what was known as ECNs, and I had to shock the organization. So we ran a command and control. I replaced two of the direct reports by 8 o'clock of my first day. And what that served a purpose of is that stopped all the internal discussions people wanted to have where we have to go. And I said, okay, this is where we're going, right? And there was no really discussion in those early days. And in the book, I talk about the fact for the early days, I always felt I got there six months too late. So our survival was somewhat uh, in doubt. Our financial position was precarious and I just didn't have the time. You know, I read where you, you, you had this bold step in the interview process even where you laid out at the interview process, there's five steps that you're going to take to turn this business around. And I was thinking, how in the world can this guy possibly, you know, know what those five things are without digging in a little bit deeper? What gave you the, 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 the courage to come out and say, this is what needs to be done without necessarily having all the facts? Well, here, here's some of the backstory. So uh, I came to know who the other candidate for the job was. And I had actually interviewed that person when I was on the board of uh, Knight Securities. And I knew how articulate that person was. So if I thought it was a standard back and forth in the interview, I might not come, on, uh, come out ahead. Uh, and so I said, let me approach it a different way. So that was the genesis of the approach. But I did then know very clearly, I had very clear set what I wanted to do. And so in that final interview, I spoke for 15 and 20 minutes about what these five steps are. And I think like four of the five of them were, were essentially right. They're not to brag. Uh, but, you know, I had been involved with NASDAQ. So when I was an entrepreneur building 
trading system in the NASDAQ ecosystem, you saw exactly how that company uh, operated. So had a pretty good handle on it. We'll get into some of those things that you did, but you know, it's, it was striking to me that you had this 100 day plan, right? You know, when you, when you talk to other leaders and they move into a new job, how important do you think it is to, to make those first 90 to hundred days really count? Absolutely critical. So, you know, you have the listening tour approach uh, to leadership when you first come in. And if you have the luxury of time, that could be a better approach. But I in no way, shape or form thought I had the luxury of time. So put it in perspective where the whole organization can kind of implode upon itself. So our market share in stocks that listed on NASDAQ was down to like 16%. And it wasn't too soon before, at that time, the New York Stock Exchange was led by Dick Rosso, who was a very capable competitor, was going to say, why are you listening with this exchange and not even trading your stock? So we're losing the transaction volume, the revenue associated with the possible market data. And then once you start losing the listing franchise, you know, you're it's kind of game over. You so, know, you're describing such a turnaround opportunity. Is that what really challenged you? Would you rather go in and turn around a business or run one that was already ticking? I that was would big? always rather turn around a bad operation, right? It's always, you know, uh, it, that certainly the ways my brain's wired and it's just a lot of fun to see what's possible and able to do it. Uh, obviously if you come into a smoothly running ship, there's always opportunities to expand and grow, but it's a lot more fun to be there. And, you know, one of the reasons I stepped down from NASDAQ is in the early days, I felt like I was jumping off of a cliff. A lot of times you didn't know where you're going to land, you know, 14 years later, then you had, you know, you had a set way of doing things. And uh, I called it the grinding of the gears, right? You had to run the bureaucracy, you know, it, uh, better than anybody. It's an important, uh, necessity. Once you get a certain size, you have to have, have certain formality, uh, to the organization. You know, you had, it had to be really heady stuff, you know, coming in, to, to be a CEO of this, you know, venerable, iconic institution. Yeah, the market share is 16%, but the whole world doesn't really know all right. that, you know. Uh, did you ever feel with all this stuff that was going on and the challenges that you had and being a CEO for the first time, did you ever feel like you were in over your head? Well, I wouldn't say in over my head, but, you know, the first six months I was worried about our uh, whether we were going to be successful or not. Uh, so it took probably two years before I knew that we were going to get there. So we did 47 acquisitions in my time. There was one that was fundamental to our success. So when I got there, we didn't have any technology in-house in the States. We had one piece of technology in Europe, which was unproven. So I was going to have to bet the whole market on this unproven technology it was based on Windows, and Windows was itself unproven at that scale. So we were able to acquire INET, and that gave us the core technology and also increased our market share. We had to then integrate it all in, which is its own set of challenge. But once I saw that the integration, we had completed the INET deal, the integration was happening, I said, now I can get into normal business mode and think, okay, what are we going to be in three or five years? But before that period of time, it just felt like survival. Yeah. You know, but you had an intense belief in your ability. It's obvious, you know. Did that just come from the fact that you knew what had to be done? Well, I think it happened from, it comes also from fear of failure. So what I say is the difference between success and failure are two sides of a very thin dime. And you're not preordained to succeed or preordained to fail. 
So I would wake up every morning with confidence, but knowing that nothing's guaranteed. You can fail with this thing. And that, you know, that's a powerful motivator. You know, one of the five things that you laid out to the board that you wanted to do was to make sure that the team stopped being satisfied with being number two to the New York Stock Exchange. What was the biggest thing you did to to define reality for your team? And, And, you know, how did you really light the competitive fire where this became sort of like an unacceptable mindset? Well, you know, uh, you really had to put a new team in, right? So in terms of the management team, the only person who came from old NASDAQ was Adina Friedman, who is my very capable successor uh, there. Or So we acquired, uh, hired a couple people, got a lot of people through acquisitions, and then we grew people internally more and more o- over time there. And, you know, one of the first things I said is we followed the book Good to Great. So I had everybody read that. And I said, the most important thing is getting the right people on the bus. As much as you have to have a one, three, and five-year strategic plan, they're always going to be wrong, right? So you have to have the athletes on the bus who will direct it as the world changes. So I was all about, let's get the proper uh, team in place, right? The right team, and then we'll really decide where to go. So you used the book Good to Great as a shared experience to really take people from me to we, where you could all get on the same page. Yes. Definitely. And again, the culture, when I first got there, nobody thought in those terms, right? NASDAQ had been a monopoly as part of the regulators. So, you know, we had a lot of people choose to leave because they wanted to be in a regulated environment. I said, we're going to weigh, measure, and count everything. It's going to be meritocracy. It's going to be based on performance. You'll have incentives. And not everybody wants that. So then they left there, but then you had to get the message. Okay, now we're going to try to get best practices in terms of the culture. Now we grow. And that was, you know, a good way for me to communicate through. You know, you say your motto is is people first. Right. You know, that that sounds like pablum when, right. when a lot of CEOs say that. You know, wh- why and, and how did you really make that real? So it just wasn't the typical BS that comes Well, let out. me tell you why I think it's important. So I would say if you had a better widget than anybody else and nobody else could produce that widget, you can violate a lot of management principles. Right? Because people come to that unique widget you have. But the fact is that the world we live in, even if you have a competitive advantage, it's temporary and people catch up. So if you're in this similar widget business, then it's going to be about how you execute your plans. right? And you're going to execute your plans by having engaged employees. right? Hard stop. There's a fundamental difference of coming to work, to work nine to five, with uh, coming to work with passion. Right, so we would take ten percent of our incentive play pay and base that upon how engaged the surveys we run, how engaged our employees were. So you really have an employee could be at a level one, but if he's engaged, he's level two point five. So the productivity yield of having engaged employees is 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 massive. Right, you know, people talk about engagement all the time now. You were really ahead of the time yeah, in we terms were. of measuring that and, and bonusing people. Up. Yeah, you just walk the halls and you see people who are happy campers or coming to work, they're, I, I think they're 10 times more productive than somebody just putting in their time. And you know this, you know, obviously very well. Now, like I said, if I had a, a better mousetrap that nobody else could replicate, then you, you can do a lot. You know, you, you can do a lot of bad management things. You also say pr- promote before you recruit. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a story of how you sought out a high potential person, sort of a diamond in the rough, and you elevated them? 
Well, Adina Friedman would be uh, the one person, my successor. So I, I would say this, in terms of why I say that, right? When you interview somebody, it's an imperfect process, right? And you try to get better at it and you do get better at it. But I look at somebody who's been in the shop, you've been interviewing that person for five years, right? Your hit rate of putting that person in a new uh, position is so much higher than just taking somebody from outside. So we tried to promote 80% from within and we felt very good about that. Now, if you overdo it, you do 100%, then you get too insular. So you need to get that 20% fresh blood coming in. But our bias was always to try to hire people we knew. We knew the pluses, we knew their minuses, and we knew you know uh, what we could do there. So that, that was successful. So Adina being the lead example, but you look at the team that I left there, you know, I, I think at least 80% were homegrown. Well, how did you identify Adina? You know, she's sort of a diamond in the rough, maybe, you know, yeah. what was it? And then what'd you do to elevate her? Yeah, it's not that hard. You know, I mean, you've been there. So, I mean, when you see talented people, right, who are engaged, they really do stand out. But what I say in the book, it's important to recognize that in a corporate setting, you know, articulation is over-rewarded. So you have to make sure these people who look and talk good are actually producing. And when I recruited Adina back to NASDAQ from Carlisle, we said, here's the two-year plan. You have to produce every step of the way, right? This is nothing is preordained. And so what we did uh, from a management style is, and it's opposite of Wall Street, we take the first month, month and a half of the year and list everybody's objectives for the year down to the most minute detail for every single person in the employee in, in the employee base. All right, so this took a lot of time. We really had to know exactly what we were trying to do for the next uh, 10 and a half months, the way it worked in, in a year. At the end of the year, if you do those, th those, those things, you didn't have to be nice to me, all right? You didn't have to smile at me. You would get paid. It was a function, right? These are pure objectives. So Wall Street, typically, they have a hunk of money. At the end of the year, they say, okay, who's this? And they kind of chop it up. We were the opposite. We put down thousands and thousands of objectives. And then you see who actually performs with those objectives. And what's great about that beyond the comp plan, it forces you to know what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish. And that sounds silly, right? But many companies or most companies, they go into the year having a broad sense, right? but not at the really detailed level. So we, you know, it would be agonizing to go through, okay, and, you know, at the single contributor level, what they have to contribute, and it all rolls up and that kind of thing. And it just made it for a functioning machine. You know, I understand that you, you really had a, a robust debate process for your executive team. You know, explain a time where you went through that process and it really paid off for you, where you might've gone down a different path. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give this one uh, uh, that everybody can relate to. So we have the market site is in Times Square, right? And it's where we do our market opens and market closes. When I got there, we're losing, you know, uh, half a million dollars a day. And so I'm trying to cut costs. And this thing's sticking out there like a sore thumb. It's costing us $25, $30 million a year. No visible return. And so I was hell-bent on let's get out of this lease. And we had the debates on this, and I came to realize that would have been a mistake. So when I talk to listed companies, right, when they talk about uh, coming to NASDAQ, they're talking about coming to that market site in Times Square. They bring their mom, their dad, their kids for the opening bell ceremony. So I'm there seeing, okay, this is kind of silly. It's costing me so much money. 
why do I need that? Right. And then everybody had been there at NASDAQ for a long time saying, no, Bob, you got to really uh, pay attention. And they were completely right. Now we did run it more efficiently than they had been running it before. And I think in certain ways better, but that's, you know, when you think about NASDAQ, why it's a big public image and has a big brand is certainly that market open ceremony. It was the there. emotional connection people yeah, have with the brands. And you, and you were kind of being unemotional looking complete. at it. And then you said, okay, yeah, these guys are right. So you would have been wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. great when people save you from yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, you seem to be an instinctual leader. I mean, you look at things and you say, Hey, let's go do this. You know, uh, this is an example of where the instinct wasn't yeah. necessarily correct. But sh can you give an example where you balance your instincts with data and you, you really get to the right decision? So I would say this. I would never make a decision uh, in the given day. I, I have a belief that sleeping on something uh, allows the brain to sort through uh, the different factors there. But I, when I made a decision... I always wanted to have the pros and the cons, right? That we had the Socratic, Socratic debate. I wanted to say, okay, why is this not uh, a good decision to have people argue it quite uh, passionately? And I think at the end of the day, you have to be instinctual or you have to be your gut. But where's the gut come from? The gut comes from the big data you build up in your head, right? Through the years of knowledge that you have. It's the facts you accumulate with this particular thing, and then it will come together. And a lot of times it comes together after a good uh, exercise session, a good night's sleep, and you say, okay, this is where we want to go. So it, it feels like it's a gut instinct, but it really isn't. It's still a lot of, a lot different, uh, driven by data. You know, you've you've seen a lot of CEOs come and, come and go. What would be the key factor in your mind that, that really helps a, a CEO thrive versus struggle? Yeah, I have very strong opinions on this. I had you unique opportunity to meet probably more CEOs than anybody. And I meet all these bright, engaging, hardworking folks. And then three years later, you hear they're, you know, they're not in the job anymore. So if you get to be a CEO, right, you get there because you are very bright and you're driven, you're hardworking. So why do you fail? So me, you fail because you don't do things that lever your time right? Uh, so you always have to pick the items that have the biggest lever effect on the organization. CEOs have to be comfortable with not being great at everything. You have a hundred things to do on your to-do list. You got to pick the 10 that matter and do them great. And you can't get hung up on the bottom 10 that you're not doing well, right? Uh, and so I think a lot of CEOs don't have the ability to not try to excel at everything. So I would always try to say to myself, what do I have to excel at? What do I have to do? And what has the most profound impact on the organization? Did you, what, did you have a process or what would be a trick of the trade that you might have used to really get to that? What was your process? That's a great question. So, you know, it, it depended. But obviously you can, uh, when you talk about leverage, you can see what has the biggest financial return over time, right? Is this a really big decision that I have to be involved with uniquely, that kind of thing. Is this going to make a you know, an extra uh, half a million dollars worth of revenue or $500 million worth of revenue? So you have the, that kind of guide. And Or is this something internally that's going to have a dramatic impact on how the company operates? If it's just a detail, then you know somebody else should be handling it. But if it's going to affect 1,000 employees and they might be less engaged and more engaged based on that decision, then you know that's what so you, you really thought about leverage in the truest sense of the word complete. when you thought about that. You know, I also love it when you say that uh, a leader has to face reality and use the word relentlessly. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know why? 
it's just amazing the capability, capacity of the human brain to obscure uh, what is reality. Right? You want to see and perceive the way you want to What's see. What's an example of where you know maybe a Nasdaq where the people oh, I was going to come reality. up with something with your golf game or something right. like that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not very good. No, your game is very good there. So uh, we'd see. So like in the early days, we would say we want to attract noisy companies to come list with nasdaq and we have a better trading mechanism we have a better product and i'm saying to our guys well we really don't in the eyes of the customer they they're defining the product this way well we're defining it that way you have that kind of mismatch associated with it so i always you know what is the customer really thinking about what we offer versus what we think we're being you know perceived by the customer is a constant thing you can always find you're mistaken on yeah. yeah, you know, Nasdaq was a, a leader in technology in its early days, but it really fell behind. You yeah. come in as a technology leader, you know, you that's your your yeah. really your your ace in the cap there. You know, how did you bring technology back to the forefront? Because Nasdaq really lost its way. What you? How did you change the culture back to where it needed to be? Yeah. So what's interesting in the book, it, it I kind of have to go full circle. So when I got there. Nasdaq had strong technology they make a re one release every year i call it a battleship and it was like perfect technology it would work it'd be fail safe but we had competitors who were now putting new soft releases out every week sometimes every day and they were somewhat rickety and the system failed they would just restart it up right if nasdaq failed it would be in the wall street journal there so we had to take our battleship and make it more like a pt boat and you know to defend the old nasdaq folks it's not black and white right they, they were engineering for a uh, a different market but i got there in a time where the market was going through rapid change so one of my recurring themes is uh you know your approach to situations your management philosophy kind of depends on where you are so i had a situation where the market was dramatically changing they didn't care about reliability as much as they did, and you had to respond to that customer need. Then customers change in time and went more back the old ways where the market was more stable and reliability became, you know, more, more paramount there. So you've got to, you know, always understand what the deck of cards you're playing are today because they will be different in the same market, you know, tomorrow. Well, you really built your capability on the technology front and to back to where it became world-class. How important was the human element in, in really making NASDAQ go with your customers? I, I think incredibly important. You know, I, I use the word I use is relentless. So we had to be relentlessly focused on, on, on the customers. And we were fortunate in that, you know, we had a competitor go through a bit of turmoil there. And anytime, you nothing better than seeing your competitors somewhat implode. As you go along, that makes life so much easier. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's people. So we had to make NASDAQ a place where the top technologists on the planet wanted to work. And that was made easier by the fact that we were at bleeding edge, right? And we pushed ourselves to be bleeding edge. So I got there. We were trying to get down to the millisecond response time in our what's known as the order match, the fundamental exchange. And now, you know, they're down, you know, towards nanoseconds. So you had the people could really engineer you know, a, a system that outside of the DOD, you know, didn't exist. So that was, uh, gave us the ability to attract great talent and we made it a fun place to work. You know, an, an old adage, and you obviously believe in this, is to listen and respond to the voice of the customer. 
Can you tell us a story where you really got a great idea from a customer just by listening? Well, I'll tell you a couple of thoughts that we got from customers, which are great, but then didn't pan out as businesses. So, you know, when you think, I always debate, you know, the Steve Jobs approach, you know, uh, you know, you'll take the customers where, where they want to go. But one of the things, and this is the customers are telling us we need to get better research coverage on the smaller companies. So, uh, because when you had research coverage, that would attract investors, attract volume, and hopefully help their stock price. So we spent a fair bit of money on uh, building up a research network in, port in conjunction with Reuters. And there's only one thing worse than having one co uh, no customers, and that's having one. So you have one, you've got to activate all the support networks and get that. So we like a half a dozen customers who are part of this research network. And it's a problem the market still has today, right? Yum Brands, Apple doesn't have issues with research coverage, but you go down, if you're a $500 million market cap company or lower, uh, then you, you, you know, you have an issue, uh, uh, with that. So, you know, I take customers as valuable for the small incremental stuffs, uh, you want to do in your product. But my feeling is again, for the bigger moves, you have to kind of come up with it yourself. But when you say come up with yourself, that's a misnomer in that it's still, you're synthesizing everything, you know, all the customer impact, uh, customer feedback impact to you, and then putting it together. Is this what we need to do? So my general advice is small stuff from customers, bigger stuff you got to kind of take customer input as one of the inputs, but it's certainly not the only one. How big an idea was dual listing for you? It was big at the time. It was a lot of fun. And uh, that came, we were went to see Charles Schwab, and he said, uh, what about dual listing? And uh, I immediately rejected it, thinking he was just trying to get the meeting over and have a pleasant meeting because, you know, we weren't there. But then we got in the elevator afterwards with Bruce Oss, who's running that part of the business. And so that has some merit because the economics of the listing business weren't that important. It was the branding element. So to have companies say, yes, I want to also list on NASDAQ, we got great brand awareness out of it. And that helped us get on the march of having actual companies switch. So right now, I think NASDAQ is up over a trillion dollars in market cap has switched from NYSE uh, to NASDAQ. And it started with the dual listing as the first step. I got to give you know Chuck credit for that. You've met so many great CEOs. Uh, you know, Name the top three that impressed you the most. Well, I think if you sit and listen to Bill Gates talk on any topic, uh, which we used to get at the Micro CEO Summit, it's just amazing the man's breadth of knowledge. And I happened to be watching a MIT podcast last night about battery technology. This is one of my passions. And sure enough, Bill Gates was the funding source. And Bill Gates approached this professor early saying, I'm there. So you talk about anything good in the world that can happen. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, you'd have to put Bill at the head of the list. And I remember meeting Steve Jobs. And uh, we... Uh, we're both going to a session with uh, Hank Paulson. We had sponsored it for some of the leading CEOs in the Valley. I happened to get there early. He was there early. And it was interesting. He had a different aura. You know, within 10 seconds, you knew you were in with a different type of human being. And that was, you know, something you'll just remember uh, your, your whole life there. And then the other one which was covered in the book is meeting Jeff Bezos for the first time. So I was, tell that story. That's a great, one. yeah, well, we were both not, you know, just regular people. 
So I was a software entrepreneur and I was the ugliest demo doll on the planet, but I'd bring around this big 20 inch monitor cathode ray tube and set it up in the office and boot it up and hopefully the software would work and go through a demonstration, which is primarily screen and mouse based. So I go into this office, it's maybe nine by 12, but not even. And I said, I don't know where I'm going to fit this thing in. So the guy behind the desk says to me, uh, you know, don't set it up. Just tell me what it does. And I said, well, it's kind of hard because this is not like a piece of middleware. It's a screen-based system. But he said, no, no, you can just tell me. So, I, all right. I said, I don't have to set the boxes up. The software is guaranteed to work if I'm just talking about it. I'm not going to have any bugs in it. So I start talking. And then I look up. The gentleman's got his eyes closed. I said, okay, this is now getting very weird as far as demonstrations go because I don't have a computer and the guy's eyes aren't open. Then like 15 seconds later, he asks a very intelligent question and puts his eyes, you know, shuts his eyes again. This goes on for 45 minutes and then we finish the demo. So what I like to say, and that was Jeff when he was just an employee at D.E. Shaw. And I like to say he was the pure epitome of a visionary who is visualizing the software. You know, back back uh, back in the day, and the McKenzie was in the next office, so you know there, you know there before Jeff was Jeff, okay. <laughs> and he got it. Yeah, yeah, he, he got it. He understood what we're saying. I want to ask you. You know, you had so much success, obviously. You know, but everyone has an epic fail. You know, what what would be yours, and what did you learn from? Well, it's very clearly Facebook. So we bungled the Facebook IPO, all right, and that was. Uh, you know, that, that was, uh, one of the few times where, you know, we're known in the business world where I became known in the general world, which I didn't really want to, uh, be. And what's interesting here, you know, the normal thing for a CEO to do when something like that happens is you fire people, right. And, uh, you feel good doing it. Uh, but what happened there and it ties back to what I was talking about before I had to examine the root cause of what happened there. And really what happened was tied back to the fact that I had let the technology people, which I always venerated, take complete control of the shop. They had engineered the software without the users, our business users, wanting it, right? And they had the control uh, to do that. And we were still running NASDAQ like I had to run it in 03, but I had to change NASDAQ back to a more institutionalized culture. So again, it's situational. If I came in 03 and kept the institutionalized culture, we would have been out of business, right? So we put in really a startup culture, guys releasing software, technology guys I worshipped, everybody knew it, right? I had my core team, they were the inner circle. But the world had changed. And now you're doing the Facebook IPO, nobody cares that you've got this innovative software thing that does things. They just want the stupid thing to, to work. So I had to then move the culture back more to where it was where I got there, you know, more intelligently, obviously. And what's interesting is I didn't fire people, but everybody who be was from that older culture, the innovative culture, they left, right? They didn't want to come. And I knew they would, right? So you have these bright, talented people uh, that you'd want if you're starting up a business, you know, seven days a week. But now we're saying, okay, we're going to go, you know, with structured releases, you're not going to control when the product goes in the release. It's going to be the user. The user is going to give you the specs. You listen to the user specs, and then you program to it. And didn't they don't want that? 
And so I didn't have to fire people, but in, and really, but within a year or two, everybody associated with the culture I'd built in 03 from the core team said, you know, I'm going to go find some place. Took care of itself, basically. Yeah, yeah, did. yeah, but that was a great learning experience. And that's why I keep saying you, you got to understand that was right yesterday is by definition not right tomorrow, right? So I did the, exactly the right thing in 03. We wouldn't have survived, but then we had to evolve back more to where we were as the business became more institutionalized. So that was a great learning experience. Now I want to have a little fun with you. I've been having fun, but I want to have a little more fun with you and ask you a lightning round of questions with a quick response. Go ahead. Okay. So what would be the three words that best describe you? Uh, Intense. uh, Hopefully have things in context. And uh, a decent guy. (laughs) (laughs) What's your biggest pet peeve of all? Well, I, I don't like, I like things planned out, right? I, I know the world will never be the way you want it to be. Like I said, you have to have a one and three year, five, five year plan, but it'll never work out that way. So I don't expect that. But to people just to come and work kind of blindly with not knowing one, the mission or where the direction is kind of drives me crazy because it's just, you're wasting cycles. <laughs> if you could trade places with one person for a day, who would it be and why? Uh, Bob Dylan. Yes. Why? Well, I was an English major, uh, so that's still part of my roots uh, there. So, yeah, I've met many presidents, but if I had to meet one person on the planet, I'd want to meet Bob Dylan. But, you know, he was a shy, reclusive guy. He wouldn't actually say anything to me, right? He says <laughs> it to be, be a quiet lunch. It'd be a quiet lunch. <laughs> you know, what would be a random fact that about yourself that few people would know? Well, it's gotten some publicity, but I have turtles as pets, live turtles as pets. Uh there and uh they're down here in florida they're loving the weather the tortoises so <laughs> hey, okay and the last thing how much can you bench press at your at your height at my height uh 300 he, he, this guy only weighs about 160 no, pounds no, so that's no. that's pretty impressive you know so the turtle your favorite animal yeah why well i i think obviously i really relate to them uh in some way but you know it's a a message right a turtle is persistent they're living, walking dinosaurs, right? They're dinosaurs on the earth. They don't have a lot going for them, but they survive, right? Uh, so I see that. And, you know, in terms of business books I read, I remember when I was a young man, I read a book on Bill Gates, and he said he never succeeded at something the first time he tried. And that just stuck with me. So I'm definitely a perseverance kind of fellow. Don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect to succeed the first time. You keep at it and you get where you need to go. You know, you, you're also doing a lot of good in the world. And you founded the USATF Foundation, which supports uh, athletes from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, for the next generation of Olympics. How, how'd you get into that? Well, my daughter ran track uh, and she was a sprinter. So I, and a long jumper. So we were primarily with the kids who came from the inner city, you know, not the distance runners. And you saw how hard they worked to be good. And some of the stereotype is a lot of natural ability, but it's natural ability levered by hard work. And the theory of the case was if you spend 10 years, right, running track, right, you're learning delayed gratification, right? I would love playing pickup basketball. I played a lot of basketball in my day, right? That's fun in the moment. But if you're running track, the coach says, okay, I want you to go out on this track, run around the track as hard as you can. You're going to get two minutes to rest. Then you get to do it again, right? You get to do that 10 times. So that's not the most fun, right? And so you're learning, you got to work hard today 
to be successful tomorrow. So I think track and field has a good way of doing it. And it's an easy sport in the, uh, uh, you know, less advantaged areas because it doesn't take a lot of equipment and, you know, people can run without a lot of training. That's great. Yeah. You know, uh, you're a hard worker, obviously. I mean, you're driven, you know, you, you know, you put in a lot of time. How'd you learn how to manage your, your work-life balance or, or, or did you? And, and did that have any impact on, on your decision to, to retire? That's a great question. So I say, I said to people many times, if you're looking for balance, you're going to fail, right? It will not exist. If you want to be successful, there's a price you have to pay and it involves a lot of hard work. I'd also say it's a marathon, not a sprint. At times you have to sprint, Right but you have to be able to pace yourself. I've lost more managers trying to sprint for too long a period of time by trying to work too hard. But I think you can get an integrated life. You need a good life partner with that, right? But if you think there's balance, I I think that's too high of a goal, but have a great integrated life. I've been fortunate to be married for the same woman for, I think, 38 or 39 years, something like that. You can't do it without the family support. It's just impossible. Do you think... You're going to come to work at 100% productivity if you have a lot of commotion in your private life. I don't, I don't see it happening uh, uh, that way. So I think it's certainly a team effort on the personal side. You, you can't do it. And certainly one of the reasons I, and I mentioned in the book, wanted to retire is that when, as you know, when the kids are little, they're there, right? As they get older, you have to meet their schedules, right? And so I wanted to be in a position uh, to meet their schedules. Just evolving to the times again, you know, yes, which is exactly. great. You know, so let me wrap this up with one last question here, Bob. What, what, what's your unfinished business? What's, wh- wh- how are you going to focus the, the rest of your life? Well, that's a big question. That's a big question. So I, I, I would say this, you know, one is I'm working 30 to 40% of what I was doing before. And I think that's a good number, right? You should never go from 100 to zero. Uh, Two is I'm obviously spending more time on my charitable activities, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, And you get a different kind of reward out of that. Uh, I'm waiting for grandchildren. I have three kids and no grandchildren yet. Uh, But obviously I'm there, uh, you know, for the family and the family being extended family. I'm fortunate to have my both parents alive, which is not going to last... Yes, I wanted to be there for them as they get, you know, the last trips around the track. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, well, Bob, I, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. And and again, I, I recommend to everybody to read Market Mover. I mean, it's a fantastic uh, book. I learned a lot from it. And uh, you're a heck of a leader. I don't know a lot about your industry. I, was, I had to really <laughs> read some of the stuff twice. But it was really, really uh, insightful, and anybody can learn from it. And I think hopefully, well, I know people are going to learn from this podcast, and that's what it's all about. I thank so, you for having me. Thank My you. My pleasure. Don't you just love how Bob can just cut right to the heart of an issue with such clarity and focus? It's pretty darn easy to see why he was able to come in and so quickly dissect the issues NASDAQ was facing and turn the whole thing around. That ability to get laser focused on what matters is a key skill for any leader. In fact, Bob says it's the one skill that can be the difference between a CEO's success or failure. It's darn near impossible to succeed at the highest level if you don't know how to leverage your time. And if it's that important, I think it's the perfect thing for you to work on this week to up your leadership game. 
So this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, take a good hard look at your to-do list. Find at least three tasks to not do because they just aren't a high leverage use of your time. Like Bob said, you may have 100 tasks on there that feel super important, but you've got to stay relentlessly focused on the ones that truly move the needle for your organization. Bring that kind of focus to work every day, and I know it will be a game changer for you. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders focus relentlessly on high leverage tasks. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader that you can be. 